Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien. On this episode, I'll be talking about the politics of evidence, from evidence-based policy to the good governance of evidence, which was written by Justin Parkhurst from the London School of Economics. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Justin Parkhurst from the London School of Economics about his new book, The Politics of Evidence, from Evidence-Based Policy to the Good Governance of Evidence which is part of Routledge's Studies in Governance and Public Policy. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien. On this episode, I'll be talking about the politics of evidence, from evidence-based policy to the good governance of evidence, which was written by Justin Parkhurst from the London School of Economics. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Justin Parkhurst from the London School of Economics about his new book, The Politics of Evidence, From Evidence-Based Policy to the Good Governance of Evidence, which is part of Routledge's Studies in Governance and Public Policy. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I think we, we might start off by discussing a little bit about where the project came from and I guess how it fits into your um, broader career as someone who studies things like um, global health policy um, and social policy? Sure. So for uh, the last five years, I've been the principal investigator of a uh, research program looking at uh, the use of research and evidence in informing policy in health specifically. So uh, before I started at the London School of Economics, I worked uh, for 15 years at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Um, But I've always been seen as a policy uh, analyst, public policy in my orientation, coming from a very multidisciplinary background. Um, I worked a lot on health, uh, a lot on HIV uh, in, in sub-Saharan Africa, but very much looking at policymaking. And a number of times in studying that, uh, I was struck by and wrote about and researched how pieces of evidence were used in national and global uh, health policy making. This led to this research project that the European Research Council funded on getting research into policy and health that attempted to much more explicitly use a political lens concerning how pieces of evidence get used to inform decision making, uh, but how political debates, contestation, political institutions influence that, moving beyond uh, the very dominant discourse and ideas in public health in particular – that evidence speaks for itself uh, and can simply guide policy, recognizing that a much more critical uh, political lens needs to come to the study of evidence use. And so the book uh, really was a collection of thinking and development of ideas over the last few years that has been an attempt to look at policymaking and the use of evidence more critically, more informed by an explicitly political lens. I think we're at a a kind of a fascinating time for a, for evidence, because, you know, as you've identified, you know, we've really come a long way from, um, I guess, a kind of series of sort of simplistic uh, models and quite uh, dogmatic positions um, on the role of evidence in public policy. And this is one of the things that the book um, unpacks really, really well. 
And before actually I get you to kind of define evidence-based policymaking, I, I wonder if you could say a little bit about the publishing model for the book. Because, I mean, I, I've been really lucky to, to read the book basically for free um, as a kind of open access PDF. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think I was very fortunate. The, uh, the European Research Council who funded my research uh, is very keen on open access publication for their research outputs. And they allowed us to use uh, research funds to uh, pay the publisher to make the book open access. Certainly most uh, academics are familiar with and increasingly um, looking for open access options for journal articles, but it's less common in, in books. Um, but by doing so, it's made the, the ebook, the electronic version, freely available, free to share. So as a PDF, uh, you can email it to whoever you like. Um, it's also available on various ebook readers, Kindle and uh, Nook um, and, and others of that nature. Yeah, and, and I think it's, it's, it's great, particularly uh, given the, you know, the kind of the subject matter is, is something that cuts across so many areas of, of social science and, and obviously into you know, kind of public policy as well. Sure. I, mean, I, I would just add, I mean, I, I've done a lot of work uh, in the past focusing on low-income countries as well. And I think we see the frustration of researchers in those contexts not having great access um, to, to, to books in particular, but also journals when their institutions can't necessarily afford as many subscriptions. And so I was quite keen on making this uh, more available because most traditional publishers, as I'm sure you know, um, at least for the first year that a book comes out, they only release it in hardback. Uh, it, they tend to sell it to a few um, libraries, mostly in North America and Europe. <clears throat> so right now, you know, you can buy the book if you like, but it costs nearly £100 or $135. And I wasn't expecting anyone uh, who has interest in this to be able to afford it that way. So the open access option, really, uh, I'm really happy about that. It makes it much more widely available before perhaps a, a cheaper paperback comes out. Yeah, it's. I, I think it's a. It's a really. Uh, it's a really good. Um, a good way to get uh, to get the book out there and to get it get it read. Right. So, what are we talking about? What is this um, evidence based policy making thing that you've uh, devoted so much time to, kind of um, researching, studying, and, and then unpacking in the book? Sure. Um- I mean, it's an interesting question, uh, and I'm, I'm going to keep my eye on the clock so I don't talk about it for hours, because um, it's everything and it's nothing. And, uh, and that sounds very poetic or philosophical, but I'm neither a poet nor a philosopher. I think most of, most of the audience would have their own ideas on what evidence-based policymaking is. You very commonly hear it referred to or described as, you know, the use of evidence to inform decisions or better uses of evidence uh, or making sure that policy is based on rigorous evidence or based on scientific evidence. Um, what the book sort of starts with is, is, is kind of laying out that that's true, but that's kind of obvious. <clears throat> evidence obviously matters, um, but what policy scholars have often argued is that evidence doesn't tell you very often what you should be doing. Um, policymaking traditionally uh, is seen as an arena for the contestation of different value positions and a choice between different possible outcomes. Mo- most of the time, policymaking is political because people have different ideas on what they want their government to do, different ideas on what a good society looks like. And classic uh, pol- political theory tells us that science and evidence cannot tell you what a good society looks like. So evidence is important. Evidence tells us if we're going in the right direction, if what we're doing is effective, um, or it can tell us whether a potential choice is likely to be effective or not. But it doesn't tell us anything about which is the right choice to make. And this has led to 
uh, some real tensions and challenges in the field because you have people really trying to embrace evidence, trying to scale up its use, trying to make sure that robust scientific evidence research findings are used more frequently and are adhered to uh, according to principles of good scientific practice. But then they face a political system in which the things that research was done on or the things on which evidence was gathered on may be dismissed, may be ignored, uh, or may be simply not as relevant as other political concerns. And it's led to a great deal of frustration, I think, in the field. So some authors say evidence-based policymaking is nothing but a slogan. It's, it's rhetoric. Um, people use it in order to promote the evidence that they care about of their own uh, interests, uh, while others then fall back to say, well, it's completely wrong to manipulate evidence and ignore it. So how could you uh, promote such an extreme position? Um, I mean, in the book, I'll just give an example, maybe, if it's useful. In the book, one of the first examples I give is the American Medical Association in the U.S. talking about abortion uh, and abortion policymaking, making the statement that, you know, abortion policy should be evidence-based. And then they talk about the evidence of how un, uh, unsafe abortions or illegal abortions can lead to medical harm in women. Now, what I point out is, while that may be true, the American Medical Association, and, and I should say, I'm not, I don't take an opinion or a position one way or another on the abortion debate, in doing this, so I try not to. But what the American Medical Association opinion really shows is quite a clear lack of understanding about the terms of abortion debates in the United States. Um, people who support abortion rights believe just that. It's about rights. It's about women's rights over their own body. People who oppose abortion also frame it in terms of rights, but they talk about the rights of the unborn. Now, whether or not uh, an abortion policy has a statistically significant potential to harm women in one direction or another doesn't really talk to the underlying issues at stake. And so to say that abortion policy should be evidence-based without actually addressing what the terms of the debate are and what social and moral philosophical concerns people have just seems to be blind use of the term. And I mean, and, then, and if you start looking and start asking that question, evidence of what, and is that what's most important, we see this proliferation of, of the use of the term occurring in bizarre places. So I think I give another reference to a, a, a media article which talked about how after some dog bites occurred, we should have, you know, evidence-based policies on dogs in, in society. Now, what does that mean? Does that, you know, obviously dog bites are dangerous. Does that mean we should ban dogs? Should we have licenses for dogs? Should we have training for owners of dogs? Uh, should we have muzzles mandatory within X number of meters of a school? It, but none, you know, none of that is obvious from this call for evidence and evidence base. So the book really tries to get beyond this simple term, which is why the subtitle of the book is moving from evidence-based policy to what I eventually develop as an idea of the good governance of evidence instead. Yeah, and, and, and actually what, one of the things that the book is really great on, I think, is charting the ways that it's not a question of kind of uh, technical proficiency in terms of our methods of gathering evidence, nor is it just a question of, um, you know, not understanding how the policy process works, but rather there are, you know, much more kind of fundamental questions that we need to think through about the purpose and function of, of government itself. And that, you know, that you've just sort of gestured to this idea of the good governance of evidence, I, I think is something that's quite a useful addition to the field. And I wonder if you could say a little bit about that term um, and then we'll kind of, you know, un unpack it a bit more in, um, in a substantial way as we, we think about the rest of the arguments in the book. Sure. So I guess going back to the, the critique of evidence-based policy um, as an idea, um, 
So those who embrace evidence and promote it are often frustrated uh, by people pointing these things out because it seems to imply that evidence doesn't matter or that you can pick whatever evidence you want and you could do with it what you want. Now, what I try and do in the book is, is really chart a much more, you could call it a realist or a pragmatic course to say, actually, the people promoting evidence you do have some quite valid concerns because even though evidence itself doesn't tell you what a good society looks like. We can, I believe, and I argue, we can point out better or worse uses of evidence, right? So we can use evidence in valid or invalid ways. We can manipulate evidence. We can cherry pick it. Uh, we can lie about the results in order to you know, fulfill our needs or promote our interests. Or we can use evidence in more robust and rigorous ways. We could be systematic with the evidence. We could be true to the findings uh, of research projects. So simply by pointing out that evidence doesn't tell us what's right or wrong, or pointing out that policy debates are about multiple factors, doesn't mean evidence is unimportant. Doesn't mean you can do what you want with evidence. But it talks to, um, the, criti the critical perspective talks to the idea that Policymaking is about choices. It is about choices between different competing social uh, values. And as such, we need to be able to set up a system which identifies which of those values are going to pr be promoted in a much more transparent and democratic process. So I use the term uh, the, the politicization of science to refer to cases where science and scientific evidence is manipulated and misused. And I say that we can hold up as a bad thing from a normative perspective. We could say it's bad to manipulate evidence and to be unscientific. But in contrast to that, I talk about the depoliticization of politics as a problem that the critical scholars, critical policy scholars point to. They worry that by promoting pieces of evidence, we are in fact biasing the debate and shifting the policy debate to those things which we have measured. So again, if we go back to the American Medical Association abortion policy, by saying policy should be evidence-based and promoting evidence of medical harms, they are de facto taking a political position. They may believe they're being apolitical, but in fact what they are saying is abortion policy should be dictated based on health harms and health harms alone, or based on those things which we've measured, based on the pieces of evidence that I bring. Another type of evidence could be a survey. We could do a survey of the population and say, should you know, women have the right to do this or not? That, in other people's opinion, would also be a potentially a piece of evidence to inform decision-making. And so this idea that policymaking can be depoliticized through the language of evidence is, is in effect, helps us get to this idea of the good governance of evidence. The good governance of evidence is a concept that's constructed through the book to say we need to adhere to multiple normative concerns. We do have concerns about scientific validity and the use of evidence. So we can say evidence is better governed when we use evidence of high quality or when we're systematic and rigorous. But we could also say evidence is better governed when we're transparent about the social values at hand, uh, when we ensure public representation in these debates, when we ensure that we don't depoliticize political debates by referring to only specific pieces of evidence. Now, in, in the literature, and I mean, I, I do this a little bit in my own um, encounters with evidence-based policy, I think the, uh, the roots of, of, of where EBP came from um, have been important in both shaping the discussions, but also bringing us to a position where we need something like a good governance uh, of evidence conception, both, you know, to kind of uh, reassert the, um, the normative values uh, that inform policy, but also to help us kind of understand what uh, the, uh, I suppose, the, the most appropriate uh, 
uh, types of evidence and methods for getting that into good governance might be. And I think it might be interesting and quite useful, actually, to understand a bit more about um, the roots of those initial kind of evidence-based policy discussions. And obviously they're kind of, you know, um, around science, but particularly around medicine. Um, and this has shaped both, you know, what we think of as being good evidence, whether it's to do with you know, hierarchies of kind of evidential standards, but also in terms of how the policy process works. So I wonder sure. if you could, you could kind of unpack the origins of, of evidence-based policy in order for us to kind of understand more why we need a good governance of evidence. Okay. So, I mean, one of the things I point out in the book is, is there are some authors who say there's actually a much longer history behind this. You know, you could probably go back to ancient Greek writings and Plato and, and you'll see reference to or statements about the need for information or whether it's science or, <clears throat> or, or other forms of what could be constituted as evidence to inform decision-making. But really the, the kind of contemporary evidence-based policy language, as you hinted at there, has in many people's opinion really grown out of the health field and its embrace of the evidence-based medicine movement. <clears throat> now evidence-based medicine is something that most people in the health community do embrace and do think is an important step forward for the health profession and the medical community. And it's fundamentally uh, a movement which encouraged much more direct and systematic engagement with research evidence and epidemiological evidence in order to guide and steer um, clinical decision-making uh, and choice of treatment options uh, for individuals. There's some very famous examples of how you know, past medical practices were not based on evidence or were not um, aware of the methods in order to gather robust enough evidence to really prove whether or not what doctors were doing was harmful or not. So bloodlettings, you know, classically, historically were, were used because of a hypothesized mechanism of effect. There was a belief that illness was caused by imbalances within the system and, and, and draining people of blood would help that. It was only until, you know, the 20th century that we really built up robust methods for epidemiological research, which could show, which show that, in fact, draining people of blood was particularly harmful. Uh, another very famous example that I lead off the book with, actually, is whether infants should be left to sleep on their front or on their back. Um, for years, uh, up until 1970s, 1980s, and, and even more recently, there was advice given by pediatricians, um, including the famous you know, Dr. Benjamin Spock, that uh, infants should be left to sleep on their front because of a hypothesized mechanism of effect. It was believed that uh, if infants were to, to, to vomit in their sleep, they'd be more likely to choke if sleeping on their back. And, th and that makes sense. It's a perfectly logical uh, assertion. But it wasn't until many years later uh, when people started systematically reviewing evidence from multiple studies that it was shown that actually children who sleep on their back uh, have a lower uh, incidence of sudden um, infant death syndrome or SIDS, um, which could have potentially avoided a number of uh, uh, infant deaths had we reviewed that evidence base early on. So the medical community really has embraced this over the years. Not to say immediately. There were some doctors who felt you know, evidence-based medicine would take away their autonomy and their inability to make choices for their individual patients. But I think over time, it's really been established that this does guide medical practice in very important and, and clear ways. Most doctors still have autonomy. They may get guidelines on what the most effective treatments are, but they're still expected to then make choices based on their individual patients' needs. But having that adherence to particular forms of evidence uh, and particular 
ways of reviewing evidence in order to guide medical practice has been seen as a major success in the medical community. Now, that idea has then, many authors will argue, has then been translated into policymaking. The idea that if this works for health, why will it not work for us? Health decisions should be made based on evidence, so policymaker, policy decisions should be based on evidence as well. And again, there's an inherent logic to that that makes a lot of sense that many people appeal to. What the book, however, talks about, and, what, and, I, and I'm not the first to say this, uh, a number of other authors have pointed this out, um, is that policymaking and political decisions are often fundamentally different to health decisions. With clinical medical decisions, there's an agreed goal. The goal of reducing morbidity and mortality is agreed by all parties. There's a problem when you start going into politics and the goal is not agreed, when people have differences of opinion on what we should and shouldn't be doing. So that's one, one, one difference that I already talked about in terms of which evidence for what outcome. But you also uh, mentioned the idea of hierarchies of evidence or types of evidence that the medical community has particularly promoted. And so many people will be familiar with this idea of a hierarchy of evidence to guide decision-making. At the top of that hierarchy, many people hold up randomized controlled trials or experimental trials. Some people refer to it as the gold standard. And again, in medical practice, these often are the gold standard to see whether or not an intervention has an effect. It controls for all other potential, uh, what we call confounding factors or third uh, third variables that might influence the outcome if we randomly assign some people to get a treatment and some people not to. But what the book goes into is to really discuss uh, in, in later chapter, in particular chapter six, I think, it really to discuss are these types of evidence the most appropriate for policymaking? Randomized control trials are a tool. They're a particularly good tool to tell us things like whether an intervention had an effect. And in medical treatments, usually we're concerned with giving an intervention. But policymaking is usually concerned with more than giving interventions. It's concerned with many things, such as what is the right thing to do, as I've said before, what public opinion is, whether, uh, whether human rights are respected, and so on. And these sorts of things are not necessarily conducive to experimental trials. There may be other forms of evidence, which are better forms of evidence to use for those concerns. So in that chapter, I, I really kind of try and deconstruct and break down this idea that randomized trials are a gold standard, uh, or there's a single hierarchy that can guide evidence for policymaking, even if there's a hierarchy that might be useful to guide medical practice. So it's really about breaking down the differences between these fields, what is applicable, and what at times is not applicable. There's also, I guess, the issue of when particular forms of scientific or research practice meet the, uh, the sort of blunt realities of, of policymaking. And you usefully uh, engage with this by thinking about the kind of biases that um, evidence encounters or is, is wrapped up in. And you describe these as uh, both sort of technical um, and then more sort of, uh, I guess, you know, political or, or issue-based um, forms of bias. Um, and you describe the way that uh, policy um, both sort of um, – produces them in overt and really clear and obvious ways, but also in more sort of subtle and, and I guess more hidden ways. And it'd be interesting to know how that works, both, I guess, the question of what are technical and issue biases, but also how are they overtly uh, and subtly produced by policymaking? Right. So, so in the book, as you say, I make that distinction between what I call technical and issue bias. And it gets back to that initial 
kind of debate that I mentioned earlier and that we talked about, where you have proponents of evidence and advocates of evidence-based policymaking who are genuinely concerned, and I think it's a valid concern, uh, over misuse of evidence, over, you know, politicians hiding bodies of evidence or or making evidence up or uh, cherry-picking the pieces of evidence that, that suit their needs and suit their predefined goals. And so I say that that's, those are biases in the use of evidence, and they're, they're technically biased. They are invalid from scientific uh, principles of good, good practice. So I call those, and I group those together by saying that's, those are examples of technical bias. So they're, they're, they're uses of evidence that we can say are flawed from a technical perspective of scientific good practice. The idea of issue bias I use in contrast to, to really talk about when I mentioned how the choice of evidence can shift the political agenda or can emphasize which policy concerns are held to be more or less important. So if we select pieces of evidence that focus on the health harms of an, of, of an intervention or, or of, a, of a policy, and we don't look at, say, social acceptability, and we say, here's an evidence-based policy because we're showing research about health harms, we are, in fact, biasing the debate towards the health concerns. Um, an example might be tobacco smoke. We all know that tobacco is harmful from a health perspective. But people in some societies might think you have a right to smoke tobacco. Now, if we said tobacco policy should be evidence-based, and if we only brought the evidence of health harms, then we are biasing the issue towards one particular outcome. It might lead to a conclusion we should ban smoking altogether, prohibit people from having the choice of doing harm to themselves. Other people might argue we should look at other evidence. We should look at evidence of social acceptability and people, how much they value their, their right to hurt themselves if they so wish. And if they presented that evidence, it could bias the debate in other ways. Now, there's nothing unusual about drawing on pieces of information that support your political position. But I use the term issue bias to refer to the ways that the language of evidence-based uh, policymaking can obscure that political debate. I'm not saying that that political debate shouldn't happen. I think that's the heart and the soul of policymaking. But for me, it's a type of bias when the way we use evidence obscures that political debate or hides it behind some kind of depoliticized idea that we're not being political because we're drawing on evidence. So I, I lay out those two differences, and I kind of say they're both concerns. Uh, if you believe that science is important, you are going to be concerned with technical bias. But if you believe that democratic representation is important, that multiple social values should be represented in decision-making, and that should be transparent, then issue bias is also a concern. So we have multiple normative concerns that are not mutually exclusive. So the book then goes into to argue, or to talk about, I should say, um, where do these biases come from, as you, as you talked about? You said that, um, you know, how I, I talk about what I call overt and more subtle origins of bias. <clears throat> it's really an attempt to move beyond the evidence-based policy language to say, what are better uses of evidence? If bias is bad in both of these forms, what would an improvement be? And so I, I, I talk about in, in chapters, I think, three, four, and five in particular, you know, where, where do these biases come from? If we're concerned with them, if we want to reduce them, we really want to understand their origins. And that's where I use these terms overt and subtle uh, origins of bias. For me, the overt origins of bias are really the, how these biases can be generated by what we think of as classical political competition. If we see policymaking and political decisions as an arena of con contestation where people are vying to win, win for their personal interests, win for their um, financial interests, win for their ideological interests. 
So corporations weigh in on policy debates because they have a financial stake at hand. Individuals come to political debates with ideological positions about what is the right way to behave. Uh, is it appropriate or not for people to homeschool their children? Or is it acceptable or not for um, non-traditional couples to get married and so on? These are ideological debates. It's, it's an arena where there's competition between these groups who are trying to, to win. Now, if we understand policymaking as an arena of competition, then it's quite obvious why bias comes about. People use evidence in order to achieve their political goals. And pointing that out just means we should not be surprised by it. We should not be surprised when we hear that Exxon potentially um, held back data that it had gathered about harmful effects of climate change in the 1970s. We should not be surprised when we hear that you know, Volkswagen hides research evidence about its, uh, about its cars if it's going to be harmful to their bottom line in political arenas. This is because their goal is to promote their interests. Similarly, you know, if individuals have ideological positions that are very important to them, we should not just assume that fidelity to science and honesty from a scientific perspective and promotion of rigorous evidence is somehow going to supersede um, all other interests in the policy arena. That's, that just is not a reality in terms of how policy is made. So I say that those origins of bias, the way that competition to basically win or to gain support in a political arena that is competitive, um, are overt because we, can, we should expect them. They're, they're the types of political strategies that really can be expected if we see policymaking from a much more competitive perspective. The contrast to that, or the flip side, is what I call the subtle origins of bias. And this is, I think, chapter five in particular, yeah. where really I draw on the, the growing literature out of the cognitive sciences um, that point to how we are often unconsciously biased in our processing of information and our perceptions. Um, so the idea that pieces of information are much more likely to resonate with us if they already align with our existing views what's called affinity bias or the affect heuristic when we have affective feelings for pieces of information because we already have a strong feeling about something. That can be an unconscious process as well by which we focus on those pieces of information which sound right to us, which make sense to us, or which reinforce our existing views. The idea of cognitive dissonance and cognitive dissonance aversion, the idea that we hold multiple beliefs and we physically and, and, and cognitively do not like it when our beliefs come into conflict. So this idea of cognitive dissonance, there are many well-studied processes by which the human mind, you know, deals with that. And often we deal with it by only focusing on the pieces of information that help us to avoid that clash in our values internally. So these are well-established and increasingly studied cognitive uh, phenomenon, which I think also helps to understand where particular forms of bias come from, why people sometimes latch on to technically biased pieces of information, but but, but as I'm saying, often it's in unconscious ways. It's not because they're consciously deciding that piece of biased information will achieve my political goals, but rather unconsciously they see a piece of information. They may not fact check it. Uh, they may not necessarily look at, look at it in a systematic or rigorous way because, because it reinforces their ideological positions, because it reinforces their prior held beliefs. So those, those I kind of try and map out as the two channels through which these two forms of bias can come about. And ultimately, the goal in doing that is to try and argue that if we have a better understanding of the origins and mechanisms of bias, then potentially we could be better informed to develop strategies or institutional structures that might help avoid them or mitigate them in the future. 
Yeah, I guess that part of the book is the kind of uh, the the diagnosis um, of, of what the issues are, and then part three moves us to, if if not the solution, kind of um, certainly you know um, a, a strategy um, to to deal with these issues, and that comes in the form of um, good evidence or perhaps appropriate evidence for policy, and then. Uh, moving towards this more broader good governance of evidence. I wonder if you could say a, a little bit about what what constitutes good or, or appropriate evidence for policy. Sure. So this talks back to um, my earlier uh, comments, I think, about the growth of evidence-based policy as an idea from evidence-based medicine. And I noted how the types of evidence that suit clinical practice and guiding clinical practice like randomized trials, systematic reviews, and, and meta-analyses, which are another way of com- combining uh, large uh, numbers of pieces of evidence together, how that might not necessarily suit all the needs of decision-making. So the third section of the book kind of says, if we understand these types of biases and we understand a bit more about where they come from, where do we go next? What is a better use of evidence if it's not just evidence-based policymaking or a single hierarchy of evidence? And so the first of the chapters in that section, chapter six, says asks the question of what is a good use of evidence if not simply randomized controlled trial data because that doesn't answer all the political needs we have. And I point out, I think, earlier in the book, the things that are conducive to studying in experimental trials um, – are not necessarily everything a policymaker is concerned with. It's, it's easy to study things like, like medical treatments. It's much harder to study things in experimental trials like you know, social development that might prevent people from getting sick in the first place. So again, if we focus only on randomized trials, it can lead to issue bias because we're biasing the policy attention to medical treatment, to pharmaceuticals, to surgical interventions away from you know, upstream, if we're talking the health sector, upstream social determinants of health and the like. So if we recognize that, that randomized trials are important but limited, what is, what is a good use of evidence? What is good evidence, I should say, good evidence for policy? And that chapter tries to construct a, a conceptual model that says that uses the term appropriateness and, and talks about good evidence for policy needs to be evidence that is appropriate to the policy concerns and of high quality as well. So that means we have to start by actually more explicitly saying, what is this policy concerned with? Um, you know, if we're making a policy about schools and whether schools, you know, whether parents should be given vouchers from the state in order to uh, have more choice over school, as a, which reduces the state budget for schooling. What are the actual concerns here? Are we concerned with educational outcomes? Are we concerned with individual parental responsibility and choice? Are we concerned with budgetary implications? We need to be much more explicit what what authors uh, many years ago talked about in terms of goal clarification. We need to clarify the goals of this policy first. And then we could say, well, what is the appropriate evidence for each of those concerns? You know, if we're if we're concerned about parental uh, responsibilities, we might do a survey to find out how important that is to parents. If we're concerned with educational outcomes, we might use more traditional uh, research designs from the education sector in terms of comparing uh, you know, different performances in schools, maybe even an experimental trial that looks before and after a voucher program was introduced and so on. If we're concerned with the budgetary implications, the appropriate evidence is going to come from economics, and it might come from you know, forecasting and modeling and other and other valid research designs in that field. 
So good evidence for policy is not a single hierarchy, but rather it's the strategic use of the appropriate evidence for the multiple concerns at stake. And then that, that chapter concludes by saying evidence, you know, qual- sorry, by saying quality still matters. Um, it doesn't mean that you can just pick any evidence. It doesn't mean that, uh, you know, if you're rejecting one hierarchy, it doesn't mean that all measures of quality aren't, aren't inappropriate or don't matter. It means that the, the measure of quality will depend on the method uh, appropriate. So surveys have quality measures built into them. You know, larger surveys, more representative surveys are seen as higher quality. Economic forecasting models have ways of measuring their quality and so on. The flip side to that, the kind of... Um the related um, concept is the good use of appropriate evidence. And one of the things that struck me in this, uh, in chapter seven was the ability to kind of say no to, uh, to evidence um, in the policy process, you know, to kind of say, well, actually we might have to reject what might be thought of as, as good evidence, um, you know, through questions of legitimacy or uh, one of the terms you use is, is irresponsible science. And I guess a way to, to begin to draw our discussion of the book to a close might be to, to think about what is the uh, good use of appropriate evidence. Yeah. So I think, as you say, that's, that's the following chapter. So this final section of the book says, you know, what is a way forward? How do we improve the use of evidence? Step one of that is to say what is appropriate or good evidence for policy, but then the second step is to say what is a good use of evidence within a policy process. And this, again, gets back to the critical perspective that says we should not depoliticize the policy process. Policymaking is about deciding between multiple social concerns. And Chapter 7 particularly draws on the field of, of you know, good governance and democratic governance and and deliberative democracy as providing ways of thinking about ways that evidence can be used that still are reflective of social values and representative to to the populations in which they serve. And so that that term irresponsible science, that came out of a research project actually a a doctoral student of mine did uh, in Malawi, where he was looking at the promotion of one particular intervention, male circumcision to prevent HIV, but found it to be very politically contested in this country. And that language was used because it was felt that um, outside agencies were pushing a political agenda through promoting pieces of research evidence. So male circumcision in that country has very strong associations with particular ethnic groups, we found, and those ethnic groups have often vied for political power. And so an outside international agency like the World Health Organization or the UN AIDS program promoting a technical intervention in name of evidence-based policy because of its health impacts was seen deliberately as a political ploy and seen as irresponsible because it was seen as basically bypassing the legitimate representative structures in the country. So the idea is that evidence should not override democratic representation. At the end of the day, if you believe in democratic theory, you cannot embrace a purely technocratic model. That does have some challenges, though. It means that you have to accept when democratically elected leaders choose not to use a piece of evidence. Now, now what that chapter, that chapter tries to get into that a little bit more and say there is a difference, however, between, you know, a Democratic leader saying your evidence, I understand it. I understand what it says. I will look at it rigorously, but I'm still not going to do what it says because I have other social concerns at hand. So if, you know, a, a legislator were to look at the American Medical Association's evidence about health harms 
and make a decision about abortion based on their beliefs about rights instead of those health harms, that's still, in some ways, we can see that as valid because they're not manipulating the evidence in terms of its um, in terms of its scientific data. They're just saying your social concern is only one of many, and I'm taking it on board. And that leads us to this idea of evidence-informed policymaking, that they, that would be an informed decision looking at the evidence. Yet we still have to accept the fact that sometimes decision makers will ignore evidence completely or do things that we are that we believe are invalid. Um, and, at, and at the end of the day, you know, it is the representatives the, uh, who are elected by the population who have the right to do that. We as scientists or researchers do not have the authority to override those representatives, even if we think they're doing things wrong. And, and it leads to this idea of, to, to a bit of a challenge. And at least, you know, there's nothing perfect in the world, unfortunately. But it does lead into the discussion of the good governance of evidence to say that we can look to, to build institutions that can protect against that or can make it transparent when it does happen. So if a government is going to ignore evidence or is going to manipulate evidence, even though scientists cannot forbid that from happening, they don't have the authority to stop them, they do have a position, I believe, in society to point it out, to make it transparent, to make it clear to the, pub, to the populace that the government is doing this, that the government is using evidence in unscientific ways so that the public can then decide if that's important to them or not and how important it is. The final chapter offers um, a kind of how-to, some, some practical guidance on um, implementing this this agenda and, and I guess uh, responding precisely to that question of, uh, of public deliberation and, and democratic control. Um, however, I'm more interested in, I guess, your, your own personal take on the prospects for those practical steps, given in the UK and the US, we face um, a political situation where I guess the kind of the questions of uh, bias in the policy process, the um, questions of democratic control versus uh, technocratic uses of evidence have been brought really, really clearly to the surface. Um, and I just wonder what, what are your sort of your hopes for the, uh, uh, the good governance of evidence in, in the current political context? I'm really unsure how to answer that. I think I'm in two minds, as everyone is. Um, you know, I can be optimistic at times and pessimistic at times. You know, the the book the book was written while this was going on in the background. And you know, in in my own defense, I'd say I submitted it to the publisher before the uh, the EU referendum in the UK, and, and certainly before the US election. But you couldn't ignore what was going on in terms of the very strategic and, and deliberate use of information and misinformation. Now, in some ways I could say, well, see, that talks to my uh, earlier chapter, which, you know, shows that policymaking is not about fidelity to science. It's about competition to win and, and people will use pieces of evidence as they see fit. You know, the book concludes by being optimistic, by saying we could build, we should look to, to think about how do we build institutions that improve the governance of evidence and that, and, and it tries to it presents a framework for the good governance of evidence that tries to say there are pieces of good governance of evidence that have to do with scientific validity. So we want to build systems that assure, ensure we use appropriate evidence of high quality that is systematic. But it also says we want to make sure that, you know, democratic representation is, is in place so that it's, you know, um, people with a mandate from the public who set up the 
evidence advisory system, as I call it, uh, that there's public representation in final decisions, that there's transparency and deliberation and so on. But as you say, you know, I'm writing that and I'm kind of constructing this conceptual framework while at the highest level in, in um, two countries, one where I was born and one where I live now, uh, we see a complete, at times, it seems rejection of, of pieces of, of evidence or fact and the like. You know, the, the current political climate, people have branded it post-truth politics. That's, that's a term I think that's a little bit overused or hyperbolic, but, but it does have some real grains of, of usefulness within it in that we're, what we're seeing is kind of the, the, the aspects of bias laid bare. Um, there's then actually, I think, a lot of really good now critical writing about the use of factual information, particularly in the, the Trump administration, um, you know, that, that links it to the cognitive sciences, which I draw on a bit in my chapter five, you know, to, to really show how pieces of information that appeal to ideological positions are useful. Um, I think, you know, m- many times I, I, when I have this discussion with people, I point out that having, you know, propaganda is not new. Manipulation of information, making statements that are grandiose, um, strongman politics. This is historically the norm in many countries. Many fascists are elected in, 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 you know, if we look to history. And I think perhaps we were a bit um, naive to think that this wouldn't happen or wouldn't have resonance. I think the cognitive sciences help us understand why it has resonance. You know, we, we do understand that people are attracted to definitive statements, even if those statements are factually incorrect. Um, the cognitive sciences are also showing us a little bit more about what we can do about it. And so my optimism comes from, I think we have, you know, we're increasingly learning how to mitigate uh, against bias, how to de-bias or diffuse situations. Now, what's, what's a problem is that you need to have, you know, situations where people are willing to come together. Polarized political environments are particularly bad for cognitive bias and for all sorts of bias. Um, and so, you know, studies, some political um, psychology, political psychology work in the U.S. has started to really show us that you can, in fact, get people to overcome those biases if you set up political environments right. So if you get people to, for example, talk about their values first. Um, so you get polarized groups. Often these are experiments done in the U.S., so it's usually conservatives and liberals. But you get them, you know, conservatives and liberals to sit down together and talk about things that matter to them in terms of, you know, what matters to your family, what matters to you in terms of jobs, in terms of healthcare. Get them to lay out the things that are important to them. And then you present them with politically relevant information. You get much less biased interpretation of that information than if you gave that information to them in a polarized environment, if you never sat them down together in the first place. So we are learning about how to depolarize. But unfortunately, we're in a situation where, at the moment, we have a very you know, strong force that is pushing misinformation at times uh, or just disregarding the role of fact-checking. The other thing that some authors point to or some, some academics argue is that uh, you know, social media and the role of the Internet has changed the landscape by which people gain information. Um, we now You can find what looks to be high quality, what looks to be valid information that adheres to or reinforces your, your pre-existing views on almost any issue you want now. It, it used to be very hard to find that, or it used to be pretty obvious uh, when misinformation and mistruths were being peddled. 
And so, you know, or you had to engage with much more nuanced and contextual discussions in order to learn about a subject area. Now you can learn about a subject area on Twitter. Um, your Facebook feed, you know, sends you information that is already in line with the previous things you've searched for, and you can find things that look like perfectly valid sources of information, which may or may not have any rigor behind them. And so for me, one of that aspect, aspects of post-truth world that, that some people talk about that actually I think does have some relevance is to recognize that the landscape by which people gain information is now much more conducive to those cognitive biases we have. And so we need to think about how we can mitigate against that as well. Um, so I have mixed views on it in terms of optimism and pessimism, I'd have to say. I mean, in, in terms of your own work, are you doing more work around these questions of evidence or have you got um, a broader, I guess, kind of social policy and health policy agenda to, uh, to return to? Um, I have, I have a broader agenda. I think, um, I have only recently kind of moved to the London school of economics and political science. Uh, and I have opportunities now to pursue different research ideas. Um, a lot of what I'm doing right now is teaching. Uh, I'm, I'm helping to run a global health MSC, uh, which is really, um, really fun and, and interesting. It's new and we're trying to grow it. And we're also trying to develop. So this is me trying to kind of keep a foot in my health work, but also a foot in the evidence work. We're trying to develop a new, uh, what we call executive MSC on evidence for public policy. And this would be a master's program targeting professionals who don't want to interrupt their work, but would want to come for short periods of time over a couple of years to learn about these sorts of issues, about evidence use, appropriate evidence and the like. Uh, certainly, if any of your listeners are interested, they can happily send me an email. I'd be happy to talk to them about it. So I'm trying to develop on the teaching side some of this uh, uh, on one hand. In terms of my research, uh, I think my future research directions are a bit up in the air, but I am very interested in linking up these ideas. I'm interested in evidence use. I'm interested in how we build systems that better govern evidence. Uh, and I have a, my longstanding research uh, work has been in sub-Saharan Africa. So I have some collaborators who I'm hoping to work with in the future to study things like how do we build systems within ministries of health that can improve the use of evidence from this good governance perspective. You know, how can we sure that it's not just about promoting randomized trials, but we can identify the multiple forms of evidence. Uh, how can we ensure that evidence use is more representative and transparent in these settings that I've traditionally worked in in the past? Thanks for listening to New Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I was talking to Dr. Justin Parkhurst about his new book, The Politics of Evidence, From Evidence-Based Policy to the Good Governance of Evidence, published by Ratledge in 2016.